Okay, so here we are back again. Welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast, part of the Corwin Orbeans Cab Network. My name's Frank, and today we have a bit of a slight foray into a topic which is a kind of a side dish to the main meal of UFOs, uh, but I think has some interesting links uh, to the UFO topic in some in some ways, which we'll kind of explore as uh, as we actually. Uh, go along. So joining uh, me for this uh, once again is Dave. How are you doing, Dave? I'm in good form, Frank. I'm looking forward to this. It is a bit of a foray, as you say, but I think it's people get quite a bit out of it, really. And uh, we both talk about this quite a lot. So we thought we might share it with the listeners and see what they thought as well. Absolutely, been interesting one. And before we get into the uh, what what the, the sort of special side dish topic is going to be, um, just worth briefly touching on a couple of things that have been happening uh, recently. Uh, we'll be talking about these at the end of the month roundtable as we usually do, uh, and I think it's fair to say most of the bits and pieces that have been going on in the UFO uh, kind of news uh, is is kind of developing developing stories really which we're sort of still seeing how they're going to take shape as 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 time goes along so it's quite good in a way to be able to see it unfold and we'll talk about it in some more detail in in the round table which i suppose will be in a couple of weeks time um but just to go through a couple of the interesting bits that have have been happening uh we've seen uh the the jellyfish ufo uh, so that was uh, quite an interesting one uh, another one brought forward by jeremy corbell and george knapp and um, again, kind of still still developing at the moment. There's still people kind of looking into various possible explanations and, and more information coming out about it. Um, in fact, uh, just a few minutes before we, we came on, uh, I noticed that uh, Susan Goff has actually made a statement about it as well, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, essentially, it's kind of a, a non-comment, which is clearly a comment as well at the same time. Um, so, I think the uh, the actual the actual statement itself um, is: uh, we do not comment on the authenticity of alleged DOD material that may have been leaked. Um, which sort of sounds as though it is proper DOD material that's been leaked, doesn't it? You know, but it goes on to kind of um, to talk about how the DOD takes public interest in uh, unidentified anomalous phenomena and takes it seriously and is committed to openness and accountability. And this commitment must be balanced with the department's obligation to protect sensitive information, sources and methods. That old chestnut. To that end, Arrow will provide updates to the public via its website as it resolves UAP cases, including sharing the analytic approach and method used for each case, as well as imagery when approved for public release. Uh, the Department of Defense takes the potential unauthorized disclosure of national security information very seriously. DOD organizations, including Arrow, regularly emphasize to their workforces the importance of protecting national security information in accordance with information security laws, regulations, and processes. So a bit of a word salad of, of jargon and diversion attempts there, and as usual, using Arrow as the kind of get-out clause. Um, but interesting, nonetheless, that the... I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that was a specific direct... Um, kind of validation of the 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 veracity of of that that 
particular video and the case itself, but sort of subconsciously does kind of give it a bit of weight as, as being potentially something that has been leaked and, you know, it is a legit piece of footage and whatnot. Um, so that's quite an interesting one. I don't know if you'd seen uh, that, Dave. It's literally just happened before we started recording this. So a bit of a new one there, eh? No, I wasn't sure if uh, that Sharpie was on the case with that, you know, trying to get a comment off Susan Goff. So that must have been, that's it, I suspect. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that I think you're right there, Frank. It sounds a bit like a non-confirmation confirmation, doesn't it? I mean, in terms of that, generally, I thought it was pretty strong. Uh, they've obviously done the homework. Obviously, we can't say. But I, what was more interesting to me was how, from that bloke uh, who they talked to on Weaponize, the guy, how they all burst in and uh, confiscated everything, got them to sign NDAs, if that's true. So I thought that was quite interesting. It was more of a reaction to it. I thought it'd be a pretty weirdly, and for me, I wondered, if you can't see that, say you couldn't see it, I mean, it was flying, how was it flying for a start? But if it was masked like that, how was that being done? Have we got that sort of tech to just mask it? And let's say you were stood near to it and you couldn't see it. Nobody seems to be reacting to it. I mean, we haven't got that tech, have we? That sort of tech of it, you, eye to eye, you can't see it, only in the IR. So I thought it was potentially significant, but as you say, it's, there's still a bit of work to be done there. But uh, I, I, I thought it was pretty good, actually, I must be honest. But, I mean, I always, I'm always pretty good because I do think they do quite a, a lot of work behind the scenes, George and Jeremy. So there you go. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I, like we've talked about with these kinds of things in the past, I'm always thankful for uh, for new cases and having the opportunity to to look at these things. And, you know, there, there will always be a varying level of, of, of mind-blowing or, or not mind-blowing and whatnot, but still interesting. And I'll be looking forward to seeing what Ash Ellis, our old mate, uh, has to say about this uh, on the roundtable as well. Oh, and I, I, I mean... I'm intending to do a bit of a bit more digging as well into some of the details and see how it plays out as well in the in the coming weeks before we before we put it to the the ultimate test, which is to see what Ash thinks of it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, a couple in of fairness other to Ash, though, we do. Uh, sorry, sorry, in fairness yeah, on, to Ash, we do. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, I think it was a bit of a delay there. Uh, in fairness to Ash, we do go on it, but he, some, he is quite on the money a lot of the times. I suppose if you're always sceptical, you're going to be right sometimes. But he is pretty good, actually. So for all we pull his leg, you know, it's good to have his, that input, isn't it? As on, as you as you were saying, I know. But, yeah, so we'll see. Well, that's it. Exactly, yeah. And, yeah, as I say... Um... Uh, you know, Ash is the ultimate test. I'm sort of jokingly saying, but it's good to have that that type of thing, uh, isn't it? In terms of you know uh, different viewpoints, and that's what of course what we try to bring to the roundtable. We don't want to be an echo chamber. We want to test our own hypotheses and stuff like that. And yeah, as Dave just mentioned, I'm using some new tech tonight, so we, uh, we we'll get into some other types of tech in a minute. But I'm currently using some very advanced modern tech, which is um, I'm not sure if that's what's causing the delay, but we do have a slight delay. So just bear with us if we do talk over each other just a touch more than usual uh, because it might be the, the tech issue there um but yeah a couple of other things that have happened is um the uh the recent um uh inspector general um uh classified uh, hearing in which there were quite a large number actually of congress people um who have actually been able to go in and uh, receive a, a particular briefing uh from uh, from the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, if I remember right. Uh, and there's actually um, 
some some really good collections of the reactions of the various Congress people when they've been coming out of this this briefing. Uh, obviously, a lot of it's about uh, Dave Grush and trying to kind of get to the um, you know the, the the further information basically around a lot of the claims made by uh, Dave Grush. And some of the reactions are quite interesting. I think there's there's been a lot of frustration from um, you know Tim Burchett and a lot of the other various names that we've seen associated with 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 all of this uh, recent kind of uh, political uh, efforts in the states um, and and there's been a lot of frustration generally about not getting any answers and so on but um one of the quotes from from the, the congress people coming out of this most recent uh, classified briefing was that um this actually moved the needle I believe was the specific phrase used. So very interesting, and it could lead to. Uh, we've not got any kind of mind blowing new revelations or anything like that. Of course, they've just come out of a classified classified briefing. They're not just gonna, you know, start to regurgitate everything they've just been shown and told. But still, very interesting, isn't it, to think that they're saying that they're actually getting somewhere now, and they've got some very good leads to follow up on. And as I say, it moved the needle. So that's quite an interesting development, eh? Yeah, I, I think. Frank, yeah, they, 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 you've said it all, really, but they, they were dancing around it a bit because they were really trying hard and they were pretty good at not revealing classified information. But the bottom line for me is nobody come out and say, that Grush, what a charlatan he is. Fancy listening to him. Uh, you know, clearly, and they were all saying in various different ways that he was credible and they were looking into what he said. Hearings may follow. So I think done nothing but bolster Grush's reputation. All that we don't know is exactly what they got into, uh, did they, you know, and what they verified. But uh, hopefully, uh, so I thought it was very, very encouraging. And clearly, the ICIG is not on the same page or probably on the same team as the DODIG. And I think we can look at that as well. So obviously, he's not going to spill the beans, but I think he's probably caught between a rock and a hard place. He's got to do his job. And uh, I think doing his job may mean that he has to, you know, go with the evidence. So I'm, I'm encouraged, Frank, I must be honest. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And um, just actually literally a minute ago, as, as I say this as well, uh, Chris Sharp has, <laughs> has been posting some, some bits and pieces about uh, how multiple whistleblowers have chosen to file complaints with the ICIG and completely bypass Arrow. Uh, and apparently some doing so uh, due to distrust of Stag, and Stag is the uh, the secretive senior technical advisory group, yeah. um, which has got some very kind of concerning, uh, you know, reports of, of people on that board, which is like a uh, an advisory group to our role uh, of the conflicts of interests of various members, and, and clearly even the, the whistleblowers themselves uh, are very distrustful of that and, and our role more widely, uh, and and are choosing to go straight to the the ICIG, which is an interesting link given that we've just heard about this ICIG uh, classified briefing there. So yeah. Um, see how all that progresses. Eh? Anything further to add on any of those developments before we move on to the, no, uh, the topic? Only that we mentioned, sorry, Frank, only that we mentioned stag before and they were bad enough, but then it might be called the antler group. I don't know, but they, uh, they, they certainly, they were the small ones who were all sort of from legacy programs, apparently Kirkpatrick's secret group. And there's a bit of an overlap between, Stag and that other group and who sat there. So obviously a lot of murky goings on there. And I would just say Arrow, they've totally shot shut up shop for now for me. So uh it's got even worse. I'm hoping the new person does something at some point. But yeah, uh you can I think it's a bit of a sideshow now, Arrow. And uh 
they're probably waiting yeah for the coup de grace i would have thought or maybe i'm just being optimistic i don't know indeed well um so after that little slight detour there just to kind of talk about a few of the bits that have been happening over the last week or so uh, let's get into what what we've obviously come here to talk about and i've not even given away what that is yet i suppose people will listen probably from the <laughs> the show title when they clicked on it so it's probably not actually a surprise after all thinking about it but anyway <laughs> um often we obviously talk about non-human life that's out there somewhere um, this being a little bit of a, a, a special episode is all about ancient civilizations and in in particular uh, ancient advanced uh, civilizations from from right here on earth um now obviously people might be thinking what advanced civilizations what are you talking about where's the evidence um you know but it's worth bearing in mind this is not kind of like the typical ancient aliens thing you know if if you're vaguely interested in this kind of thing but i've always found it a bit of a nightmare trying to navigate the you know the sort of clickbait nonsense that's everywhere when you look at you know searching the internet for anything to do with advanced ancient civilizations you know you might want to make yourself comfortable sit back and relax and check this out so obviously people will know what i mean ever since the ancient aliens tv show even typing the word ancient into YouTube, it's kind of the first thing that pops up as a recommendation. And obviously that is a fun show. Don't get me wrong. I'm not being kind of like highbrow and looking down my nose at it. I've, I've watched it. It's entertaining. Um, you know, but can we really say that it's based on solid science and that kind of thing? It is a bit of a tough one to take seriously, even if they are talking about some very interesting ideas. And I think the line, obviously, you know, in, into kind of stretching you know the 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 kind of limits of 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 what can be taken seriously in the, in the name of entertainment is is definitely kind of what goes on with those types of shows but it is an entertainment show at the end of the day it's not to be presented at a scientific conference at a university it's for people to watch in the evening and and you know and and sort of relax and enjoy some interesting ideas but these kinds of shows of of course use that phrase you know could it be very regularly and that's always the one that they use could it be that and then you know <laughs> any kind of number of crazy outlandish kind of speculative theories um you know and of course the could it be uh you know caveat there basically means that they're not committing to actually saying that this is the thing uh but it's just exploring those interesting speculative theories which again as i say is is, is entertaining but you know when you actually try and dig into how much of this is actually legit, you know, how much of it is, uh, is is real, you know, because it's important, I think, you know, it's not just something that is purely for entertainment purposes, like what, how do we drill down and get to the actual facts of, of all of this? And I remember, you know, having a similar thing with UFOs over the years, you know, trying to start what I would class as serious research, probably not serious research compared to some actual, you know, professional researchers and scientists and whatnot. But, you know, my idea of actually drilling down into what's really going on, I tried that time and again, time and again with UFOs and ended up being frustrated by a lot of that, um, you know, kind of entertainment, sci-fi, that type of stuff that is, is everywhere and still is everywhere even now uh, with UFOs. But over the years, I have kind of managed to, I'll cut through a lot of the nonsense and and in my opinion there is some very very interesting information buried beneath all of that other stuff 
Um, uh, you know, as I say, similar thing with UFOs and the waters are muddy and, you know, there's a lot of, of, of more kind of entertainment based sci-fi based stuff out there. But if you spend enough time, I think you can get to some of the more compelling bits, which hopefully we will, um, present today. So, um, you know, let, let's kind of start off with why we find it interesting to look at this topic in general. Uh, I've, I've already sort of mentioned there what so I, how I got into it and uh, what, what led me to, to finding some interesting aspects of it um, and why it's interesting to look at this topic alongside UFOs as well. So what are your, your thoughts on that, Dave? What brought you to the this kind of thing? Well, funnily enough, Frank, I've always had an issue. Uh, interest in Asian history since being a kid, probably like a lot of people, and I, I know a bit about, I know quite a bit about Roman history and all the rest of it, and, and Egyptian and stuff. But where I really got into it, because I knew a bit, I, I, I read that as many people did. Graham Hancock's famous book, Fingerprints of the Gods. I'd read a few other things as well prior to that, but he really lays down what is potentially an alternative explanation of history, and the fingerprints of the gods are the fingerprints of a much more older civilization but we dubbed as gods as humanity because they had a more technological sophistication so that's really how i got into it and i got in i've been into ufo since about 88 i suppose which ages me a bit and i probably got into this around seriously probably around 94 something like that so and the two i've sort of viewed them separately but there's amazing how much it dovetails and I think if you watch Ancient Aliens, basically they go on what you might say a standard timeline and say, well, it must have been aliens. How would they have been able to build these things? It's quite simplistic. But I think potentially if we look, and there is a lot of grifters in the field and people sensationalize you, and you've got an academic finger really against it, a bit like UFOs. But I think if you dig a bit deeper, why it's worth us looking at it, it gives us potentially indications about sort of science we weren't aware of. It also means there may be a longer timeline for us to consider for humanity. And when we were civilized, we might have had rise and falls in our civilization. So we might have a much more complex relationship with the others, whether it be from this planet or from another planet or from wherever, when we've sort of been led to believe. And, there's a, and so it, in looking at this, it may well give us information and other evidence that might point us towards something about the uap topic and any connections and it does seem to be that the ancient civilizations fought a lot differently than us about consciousness and about other things but i think there's a number of connections and i've often thought looking at the two there's certainly parallels and the key thing is this idea of cataclysm which i get into and if we've been had successive civilizations it may well be that We've had different relationships over time with the others, and so and that's reflected in our myths. So for me, uh, and I hopefully what people will get from listening to this is it will give them the ability to sort of think about that as well and see if there's any connections they can make. But I'm not a hist- you know an archaeologist or an expert. I've read about it. I know a bit about it. But and so we are having by ne- definition to speculate. Otherwise, we'd probably do a 20-episode thing on this to get to all the historical links. But hopefully it gives people food for thought, and if people can ask us after that what they think as well, and we can maybe do another thing based on any questions. But, yeah, so I think it's quite relevant. And uh, as I say, we might have a more subtle relationship than we wouldn't have thought with the others over a longer period of time. Yeah, definitely. And, um, 
yeah, as you say, this definitely won't be a, a, a speculation-free zone. I think, you know, we can be allowed a bit of speculative time here because we're talking about things that happened long in, in the distant past. Um, but I think we, we will get to discussing a little bit about what the actual standard model of history is as well. Um, but is there any, any further points you want to make, Dave, on like the connections to uap and, and ancient civilizations and that kind of thing or should we should we dive into no, the no the, the only one is that there's potentially there's, there's potentially some of the science that they developed or potentially developed could be linked to the science that the others use so that's an important thing to keep people to keep an eye on and also it might indicate a bit more going out there a bit more of a limb but there may still be some remnants of them are already here are still here and that might be an explanation. That's a crypto-terrestrial theory, essentially. So people might want to bear that in mind as they go, as we're going through it. But yeah, I think if we go start with the standard model of history and then work from there, uh, we'll probably yeah we'll probably start to do that. Yeah, it sounds good. And it, it's funny, you know. I remember. I think it may have actually been one of the first times that I ever spoke to you. Funnily enough, I, I was on a listener call in on that UFO podcast. And um, I was actually talking about, um, you know, ancient civilizations and that kind of thing. And I remember caveat it by saying, you know, just to throw it out there, you know, I'm not talking about aliens built the pyramids. You know, there's more complexity to it than that. And I think there's almost a you know, a bit of a stigma because of some of the, the entertainment shows. And I'm and again, I keep saying this, but I'm not bashing them because I've watched those types of shows as well. And we've talked about this. I think it's quite interesting. It gets you the mind going and whatnot. Uh, but at the same time, I think uh, it has the slightly unfortunate effect of, of people thinking that that's all there is to it. Whereas I think actually there's some really compelling sites around the world and things like that, which obviously we'll, we'll get into as well. But as I say, funnily enough, I think that while I was on that listener call in on that UFO podcast, and I think you were the next, the next uh, caller, yeah, and uh, I I think we'd, we'd, bri- we'd we'd briefly spoke in the past, and I remember um, Andy actually said to me, "You might want to stick around because uh, Dave's on next, and he's going to be talking about something similar or something like that." I don't think I actually did because I had to get off afterwards, but then we ended up yeah, chatting right, afterwards, and obviously here we are, um, yeah. a couple of years later. <laughs> that's right. we, haven't, we haven't finished yet, have we? <laughs> oh yeah. no. Um, but yeah, so there's, I, th- I think just in terms of those links as well, um, something that we hear, I, su- I suppose you could say more and more these days uh, in, in the UFO community discussion is how UFOs kind of operate outside of our perceivable reality and how there are human capabilities that we you know, that we aren't fully aware of and, and and certainly how the kind of fundamental model of reality as we accept it may not be as watertight as we previously thought. And all of these types of ideas around ancient civilizations kind of relates to the fundamental model of history um, as, as is currently accepted, which also mm. does not really appear to be, you know, watertight. And it's it's quite fascinating to me how how we we never have the finished article you know, people who thought they had all of the answers 200 years ago would uh, certainly have a rude awakening these days if they could see what we know now in terms of science and how the world works and, you know, the laws of physics and whatever it might be. And our conclusions about the universe and our role in it as humans, you know, and, and also our own history as a species are, are far from the finished article and really just represent our best guess at any one point in time 
obviously informed by the best scientific work we can do at any point during our development as a species. But of course, that's continually changing. And all we can do is get the best information from scientific investigations, from research, archaeology, whatnot, and, and make a best guess as to where we've come from, where we are right now, and where we're headed. And obviously, the problems that can arise with with uh, that arguably innately human trait of, of defending the current paradigm till the bitter end, even when new information becomes available. Um, you know, the, those problems happen in the UFO uh, side of things. And, and of course, I think that's a, a link here that we, that we see with these kinds of things as well. I'm all for, um, you know, survival of the fittest in terms of ideas. You know, I, th- I think probably we all should be, um, if a better idea comes along and it wipes out the old idea, then we need to accept that. But inevitably, academic power structures and kind of generational gatekeepers are, are going to want to hold on to the ideas that they established. And it can often be a hard-fought victory to change these things. Uh, but, you know, as we've seen time and time again through history, things do inevitably change given enough time. Uh, but one hard-fought battle at a time, I suppose. Um, so anyway, as we were saying, you know, I think those are some of the interesting links and, and some interesting parallels as well that perhaps don't often get discussed. Uh, but before we do go any further into some of the the, um, the ancient civilization, you know, evidence and, and the compelling aspects and stuff, um, if you want to go through that um, a little bit about the what the currently accepted model of history actually is, I know you'll be able to give a, a rundown on that there, Dave. Yeah, what I'm going to do, Frank, I'm going to go a fair clip throughout this, otherwise it's long enough as it is, so I'm going to go a fair people can bear with me. And as people know, my name pronunciation is Legendary Poor, so you'll have to forgive me for that as well. But anyway, let's see how we go, shall we? So uh, the standard model of history, as, as, as the standard model that still persists now, more or less, is that 200,000 years ago uh, we migrated from Africa, man, modern human, uh, across Asia and Europe. About 50,000 years ago, there was what they call the Great Leap Forward, where we had sort of the beginnings of culture, cave painting, ceremonial burials is the big thing that they look at. There was some sort of change in our psyche. Then about 12,000 years ago, so we're at 10,000 BC, the first people reached the Americas. It wasn't populated before then, apparently. It was over the Bering Strait from Russia, from Asia. So there was no oceanic travel. It was all done like that. Uh, then at 6,000 years ago, 4,000 BC, the Sumerians, uh, well, sorry, 12,000 K, I should say, that's the first people reached the Americas. And at 10,000 and 8,000 BC, I suppose, sorry about this, I should pick one of the other, really, shouldn't I? Uh, the beginning of agriculture in Mesopotamia, around Iran, Iraq, around that, and the start of civilization. So that's when we start to see civilization. And when you have agriculture apparently you can develop more modern sophisticated societies with a division of labor because you have a surplus crops and everything and everybody's not hunter gathering and hunting for their own food that's the point but then we saw about 4000 bc the sumerians developed the first civilization this was followed by the egyptians the greeks the chinese the romans and so essentially we went from the stone age to the space shuttle in 6000 years there was nothing before that. We're all running around with whatever, loincloths and spears or whatever. <laughs> Wherever I've got that from my old TV view when I was a kid. Uh, and it was a linear path to civilization. There's only been us, essentially. So that that is the standard model. 
and uh, what I was going to go into next was just a couple of developments, an overview of the developments that have challenged that view. Okay, now I do want to give, uh, what's the word, credit to Ben van der Kirk from Uncharted X because uh, he's done a really good sort of model of this. So I've sort of followed his structure of the, the areas he's identified. Uh, and so I, in case Ben's listening on the off chance, I don't want to think I'm nicking his, uh, his structure without giving him due credit because it's a really good one. So the first one is the, 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 the developments that sort of challenge that view, I suppose. The first one's archaeology, and there's been loads of discoveries in Turkey. The big one you'll have probably all heard about is Glebekli Tepe. That's in southeastern Turkey. Found to be at least 12,000 years old. Stones needed proper population to make it work. Stone. Hunter-gatherers couldn't have built it, essentially. And that that's a... Uh, that's at 10,000 BC, 12,000 years ago, 6,000 years before anybody was supposed to be able to do that or even do Dugan agriculture. And uh, it would have required this sort of civilization specialism to actually make those things, as I was saying. So it puts the dates back 6,000 years straight away. There's lots of older sites in Turkey, Karan Tepe, they've just discovered, which they haven't dug up yet. They haven't dug up a lot of Globeki Tepe, actually. Other cities all over the place. I won't go into this much, but there's a pyramid in Indonesia, about 25,000 years old. Evidence of much earlier colonization in South America. In North America, the Blue Cave they found, I think it might be South America or Central America, at 25,000 years old, blowing a massive hole in this idea that humans had walked across the Bering Straits 10,000 years ago. So basically, it means even in relatively near periods, the whole period of human history and civilization we weren't aware of. And so it blows a big hole in the standard model. Then if you look at the human timeline, and that's relevant for how long have we actually been around as modern humans, we found the jawbone in Morocco, which was 300,000 years old, so that immediately gives us uh, 100,000 years more than we thought. But they've also done a lot of work in teeth morphology, and uh, it's quite a developed field, actually. And these, this work suggests that we were sort of diverged from a common ancestor, uh, which would have been the Neanderthals and probably Dennis Owens as well, about 800,000 years ago. So we were anatomically modern humans about 800,000 years ago. That's a suggestion. There's another academic paper that's on a different tack, but similar, you know, using different scientific evidence, could be 600,000 to 900,000 when we diverged. So the point is, we've been around for much longer, you know, uh, not 200,000 years, maybe 800,000 years, maybe more. We've been around and there's been years of cataclysm, climate change, and you as humans have been around for. And the, the point is, it's a much longer time for many civilizations to develop and fall. It might mean we are not the only ones and haven't always just been, wasn't just this linear path to one civilization. Now, the next thing to look at is DNA evidence. If you look at what they call different DNA haplogroups, now haplo just means ethnic, essentially. And there's loads of things to suggest, look, tracking the DNA around the globe, that there's a lot of early global population movements that require, crucially, seaborne travel. Big thing is the standard model is nobody went on the sea at all. There was no sea travel. All the community people didn't talk to each other. They're all isolated and everything developed separately big article of faith but all these gene things show that people have moved around south america was potentially populated first and there was moves from australia 
to South America and from Africa to South America, which must have required sea travel. There wasn't a land bridge then or anything like that at any, at any time. So that must have required sea travel. So basically it suggests much more earlier global migration and more advanced knowledge of boat building and sea travel, which are the key ingredients of a global culture. And to me, it makes more sense if you had different types of cultures and if you had global cultures, that's where you would have had those population movements. I can't see just a couple of people on a few logs on the off chance rolling over to South America. That implies more structured migration to me. Uh, the other thing to think about is there's actually quite a lot of evidence of cataclysms uh, that have been happening. Now, things of it in the standard geological model, they tend to move away from the idea of cataclysm as it was slow, steady changes over many, many years. But there's been more, and that would imply there isn't much upheaval in civilization. But actually, there's been a lot of evidence recently. The Younger Dryas event, you've probably all heard of that a comet or maybe even a solar flare or something. Uh, 11,000, 12,000 years ago and then 10,000 years ago called the Younger Dryas event. And this had a massive effect on the population. It was a, not quite as bad as the thing that hit the dinosaurs, but it had a massive effect on the world, pop, the world climate. It ended the ice age and sort of, because apparently the comet hit the, the, the ice, the earth was covered with much more ice and it had a massive rise in sea level. There would have been also, uh, there would have been a bit of a global uh, not a nuclear winter, but a winter because of the ash in the air, and basically affected a lot of the population centres, most of which would have been near the shore, which is quite important because if you look at most of the, I mean, 80% of the population near the shore to date, certainly in ancient times, that was the estimate, maybe more. So all those ancient cities would have been underwater. 400 feet was the rise. So there's also a DNA evidence suggesting this in terms of the effects on populations. Again, how they moved. And so basically, this, this evidence that it happens a lot, this consistent cycle of cyclical destruction, which means that uh, there, could, there could have been a lot of civilizations could have rose up and then been destroyed. And that's quite interesting, really. Now, if you look at, just to back this up, if you look at origin stories, you can see little that we have myths that have persisted in societies. You can see quite a few indications of this. There's lots of stories of floods, catastrophic fires, and they seem to be at the core of these stories and memories of events that have happened. It's not just the younger dry stuff, but older ones as well, various different types, like, uh, as I say, fire, flood, different other things. But they're consistent stories of cataclysm, effectively. effectively. Now, there's also lots of stories of civilizations being destroyed, civilization that existed, that was quite sophisticated, and then having to start again. And this is across many cultures and religions across the world. So it's not just related to Europe or America or the Middle East. It's across the world. And there's also stories of ancient races of people with almost godlike powers, or at least much more sophisticated than we are, than the people telling the stories, coming to help and all the rest of it. And finally, and I'm going to go into this in a bit more detail later, or we'll talk about it in France. In terms of ancient technology, there's lots of ancient artifacts that suggest there was a more advanced ancient technology that's sort of far beyond primitive tools that the archaeologists said that they said that these civilizations had. So we sort of got a lot of stonework with evidence for it to be moved. There must have been lifting, advanced machining, some kind of manufactured of stone, and also the way they were constructed, knowledge of sort of advanced scientific principles. 
And there's a lot of other things as well, which I'm going to go into later. But essentially, a lot of these evidence we see of how these civilizations built and developed and uh, had their infrastructure, it's not reasonably explained by the standard archaeological explanations, you know, flint chisels, bronze tools, pounding stones, didn't have any advanced mathematics or geometry or anything. So uh, there's evidence that many of these are relics of a much earlier civilization. The biggest example would be the Great Pyramid. And we can, don't want to go into that too much, but I'll get into that a bit later. But the sophistication of that alone would suggest that there's quite a lot of tech going on at a time when people didn't even know what pi was, apparently the ancient Egyptians. But that's the overtell. So there's six factors there that uh, sort of blow different holes in the standard model, the steady states. And so what does that mean? So we can see the standard model sort of falls far short for me anyway. There's a lot of new archaeological evidence from much older civilizations than we thought, as I was saying. There's also uh, evidence that some of the very old civilizations, and that's quite interesting, they developed quite sophisticated tech. But I suppose the question is, then, if that's the case, why are we not more advanced as a uh, species now? Why are we not more advanced? You think we would be, I suppose. And I think that would be answered because there's also a lot of evidence, as I was saying, of these consistent cataclysms that stretch back over time. So if you think about it, you could have a constant rising and falling of civilizations that are beaten down by a cyclical cataclysm. And that's well worth, I don't want to sound the alarm of doom for everybody, but that's well worth us thinking about in terms of our interaction with UAPs and what that means for some of the ideas we've developed as a civilization as well and how old we actually are. Uh, as I say, it's backed up by the evidence, as I said, about the modern humans and how long we've been, we've been around a lot longer. There's evidence, as I said, of worldwide population movements and a possible maritime culture. And again, this, I think the standard archaeological explanations don't really stand up to the data, but they persist, as you were alluding to, Frank, due to the power of these paradigms in academia. And I wondered, I don't think the academics have some massive conspiracy to keep this from us, but I do think they may be softly encouraged by the governments who probably may not want the idea of regular cyclical cataclysms to gain currency in the general public. I could see that scenario. And just to put it in people's minds, it may be a, a one reason potentially why we see more interaction with it, you, 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 you know, the others now. I think it sounded uh, spot on. Uh, very, very interesting indeed. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, it's obviously I'm kind of aware of a, a lot, a lot of that timeline and whatnot. Anyway, and obviously we've spoke about this at, at, at length and that kind of thing. But it's always interesting just to sit back and you know put my feet up for a few minutes and and, and listen to it as well because it kind of allows it to sink in, in in a different way. A bit of a reminder of it too. Never never did in the arm but it, there's an interesting link there with the cataclysm thing again it, and it sort of does just remind you that like if you look at our planet it's got massive battle scars all over the place huge craters impact craters i mean you only have to look at the moon to see how, how many times the moon has been impacted because obviously that's not got vegetation and stuff growing over it and the sea and things like that but even just the ones that are actually completely accepted by even by mainstream science, there has been 
multiple huge impacts to this planet. And it's that thing I think uh, Graham Hancock used to say that we're in a, a cosmic shooting gallery. You know, <laughs> we're just and it's if if you think about it, like obviously we're all day to day lives. You know, you go to work, da da da, but we're on like a spherical rock just flying through the abyss and there's all kinds of other shapes and sizes of rocks flying past us all the time you know i always i always kind of chuckle to myself in a i suppose in a slightly sadistic way um when you see one of these articles you know um oh you know nasa spot uh, an enormous rock the size of the eiffel tower it's going to go past us in uh in two days time luckily it's not going to hit us <laughs> but it's quite terrifying isn't it when you actually think about Absolutely. we know that this this planet has had like the entire planet used to be, you know, ran by giant lizards the size of a house, and then all of a sudden they got wiped out by a massive rock hitting the planet. We know that this is an actual reality, you know, but it's I suppose, like I say, when you hear you, so some of the things you were explaining then about cataclysms and whatnot, it does just kind of, you know, it brings it home, and it, it also, you know, stresses another kind of parallel, I suppose, with UFOs that this planet and the history of this planet has been shaped by um well even without any any question marks around it it's been shaped by interactions from the rest of the universe you know huge objects smashing into the planet and completely altering the course of history on this planet and you know obviously that is accepted but perhaps there are more interactions like that that have shaped the history of this planet even in the much less distant past you know in a more recent past as well and obviously that's what you're talking about the the younger dryas impact hypothesis and that kind of thing before we carry on as well i just want to also add another shout out to uncharted x ben from uncharted x uh, i don't know ben but i'm um, a huge fan of the channel um you know somebody i keep thinking maybe reach out and, and get him on but it's specifically you know about archaeology and, and and ancient technologies and it's not it's not really a ufo thing but certainly a, a huge fan of ben's work and i'll come back to that later on um got some notes about some of the specific work that he's done but uncharted x on youtube is where you want to be looking if you want really interesting in-depth analysis about ancient objects and um the one of the things that you were talking about is how widespread these kinds of things are around the world and a fascinating video that ben did um is about uh, machu picchu for example um there's also similar kinds of things in a place called uh, puma punku as well they've all got these kind of very difficult to pronounce names as you mentioned earlier dave apologies to anybody out there if you're a native speaker of any of these languages but um but machu picchu in particular one of the things that's really fascinating about that is that it's very, very clear to see that the the oldest parts of the stone structures in terms of the walls that are built are apparently the most difficult to achieve. And you can clearly see, obviously, if you're looking at an enormous wall made of blocks of stone that very, very tightly locked together, they lock together so tightly at very, very unusual angles. And there's various videos you can see online of, of these these uh, these blocks. And there's not just a few of them, it's all over this particular site. Um, and they're so tightly fitted together that you can't even get a credit card in the gap in between the, the connections of these, these, these enormous blocks. And it's very clear that the biggest, most complicated parts of the structure are the lower parts. And then there's kind of a secondary layer, which is clearly newer because it's built on top of the old bit that is 
impressive, but not on the same level as what the the very oldest parts of the structures are. And it does suggest, as you sort of mentioned there, uh, Dave, when you were talking, is um, actually in in a lot of these sites around the world, the oldest parts are actually more advanced, or, or at least appear to be, than than some of the newer parts uh, in there as well. And of course, it does suggest that there could well have been some kind of much more advanced uh, civilization, not suggesting necessarily that this civilization had the ability to fly spaceships or anything like that, but certainly seems to be a lot more advanced than what we currently understand according to that standard model of history that we were talking about earlier, uh, which kind of leads me quite nicely onto one of the the most kind of legendary, um, oft-discussed, uh, you know, civilizations I think it's fair to say mythical uh, at this point, uh, which is Atlantis, you know, and usually alongside the aliens built the pyramid type videos on YouTube, you'll get a few about Atlantis as well. And there are, you know, these various statements, uh, you know, about alien involvement of Atlantis and all these kind of quite far out aspects. You know, but what of this Atlantis myth, is there actually any, you know, substance to it? And what's for sure is, there certainly is quite a lot of evidence of advanced technology in the distant past. And a lot of people think of Atlantis as kind of like a specific, like an island, you know, or or a city. But, you know, there is also some argument that Atlantis, if it did exist, may actually be more like a general term, um, you know, that, that, that it kind of evolved into mythology over the millennia. And people have had, if it really was the case, that a very advanced advanced civilization existed and was wiped out by a cataclysm and knowledge from that advanced civilization has kind of seeped into modern culture um you know and obviously we know about all these massive megaliths across the world and and some of that knowledge could perhaps have been passed down in traditions and 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 perhaps even in religions and things like that but of course over the passage of time the waters can become quite muddy and it's difficult to to separate what what is true information that's that's come down the you know or through the years and, and what's been added on what's been embellished and things like that um and again you know another similarity with ufos there is it's very difficult to separate that wheat from the chaff uh with the pass a passage of, of so much time but there certainly is um you know some very interesting substance uh to it uh, having having looked into it but what, what are your thoughts on atlantis and, and any of that sort of things dave yeah, I think, Frank, yeah, it, Atlantis is a good sort of can opener into the sort of general trends we were talking about earlier, really. Because it's what it's sort of myth and history sort of gives us a bit of an indication potentially of what was going on. So, in terms of, uh, I mean, it may be indications of a certainly a global pre flood about 12,000 years ago. Now, the, the Atlantis, I was actually got interested in Atlantis. I read a book famous book by a guy called Ignatius Donnelly who I like about Atlantis called Atlantis, the antediluvian world, which means before the flood, antediluvian. But anyway, I was 13 when I read that and it had a really big impact on me because of some of the things it said. Uh, anyway, uh, it gets the story from Plato's tale uh, it's in his dialogues of Timaeus and Cretitis, I think, and I'm sure I've murdered that. There'll be a lot of classical scholars laughing now. But anyway, he got the story from, fully enough, his great-grandfather, Solon, who was a famous lawgiver in Athens. In, yeah, Athens, yeah. 
he went to the Egyptian priests at the Temple of Neph at Sazin. I think it was northwest Egypt. Yeah, that's just where it is, if people are wondering. And they told him about the story of Atlantis, that it was a, a, con a large continent in the middle of the Atlantic, a base island called Poseidia. Funnily enough, we're in Poseidon, Neptune. So you can see some links there in mythology. And basically, it was an advanced seafaring civilization uh, and uh, it had world influence. It perished in a terrible cataclysm around 9,600 BC. That's Plato's dating. And funny enough, that's virtually bang on the younger Dryas dating, and which they dated because it's various relics in the fossil record and the geological record. The survivors fled to try to restart their civilization again. You know, so we've heard those tales. And the Egyptian priests, and this is interesting to the things I was saying earlier, said to Solon, this had happened at least 10 times before with humanity having to, and this is a famous quote, to begin again like children every time. So they were telling us at least 10 of these cataclysms. They also said there was a much earlier and more advanced race of people in Greece that this happened to who were even better than the Atlanteans in terms of the sophistication. Now, funnily enough, they started finding in Greece over the last 20 years on top of the very old buildings in Greece, some really cyclopean massive blocks of stone that some of their old buildings are built upon. But that's a really interesting indication that there. Anyway, yeah. And so there's a lot of other tales in the ancient world of destruction of an ancient civilization, not just the Atlantis one, not just from Plato. And the very similar destruction, uh, the civilization goes down and the survivors try to rebuild civilization. The classic one is the Egyptian tales of Thoth and his seven companions who are bringing wisdom to the world after the Great Flood. And there's a few other ones in South America as well. So to give you an idea of Donnelly's book and where, how it took people's imagination, he was a famous American politician, and I've written here he was a polymath. And I always thought a polymath was somebody who spoke a lot of languages, but apparently that's a polyglot. Polymath is basically a know-all who's an expert in loads of different things, and they were quite big in the 19th century. Anyway, and he was a senator, he did all sorts of things. Uh, and he published a book on Atlantis, and the things that he noted, which I think struck a chord, he noted the shared building types, i.e. pyramids and other things, all and cultural iconography and the shared myths all around the world. And this hadn't really been picked up, well, it had been picked up on by some writers, but it started to be dismissed as modern archaeology advanced. And he, and he also noted the evidence of a great disaster from biblical stories and other stories. And uh, also, he then said there was evidence of survivors fleeing to the Basque country, South America, Egypt, and the Middle East. And if you think about some of the civilizations we see there, you can see some links there. So it really took people's imagination, and he connected a lot of dots. And I think people listening now, and I'm going to go into it a little bit more in a minute. Now, Atlantis sort of, as an idea, perished a little bit in the, in the mainstream because in the 70s, the geologists said there was no evidence for a landmass like Atlantis in the middle of the Atlantic. So that was a bit of an issue. Uh, they also said, that, as we heard, there was no evidence of a worldwide civili ancient civilization and said, as I've said, alluded to before, they had no contact with each other. Nobody spoke to each other, which again seems a bit crazy given the shared iconography. Uh, the scientists said there was no evidence of a comet strike, which we've seen there is now. And uh, 
as I said earlier, all this seems to have been contradicted by the new geological evidence. There's a lot of evidence that there's false that stuff around the Atlantic and the islands and all the rest of it, which I haven't got time to go in for there, but there is a 10-part Randall Carlson series on that, if you really want to listen to it. But there's quite a lot of really good stuff on that to listen to there. It's very good. But uh, take my word for it, it's not quite as clear-cut as uh, you would think now. There's evidence of early civilizations, like I said, the older population, the gene genetic stuff I've talked about, and the comic strike, all around the time Plato said. So the key thing is not the belief in Atlantis as such, and it's like what you said, that was bang on what you were saying, Frank. It's, it's the evidence of a much older, worldwide, sophisticated, seafaring, sort of global civilization. That's the key thing to think about with this. Atlantis may have just been an ideal that people constructed, or it may have been real, it may not have been, but it's that idea of this global. And I think when I look at this and I boil it down and all the different speculation, I do think there's a lot of core evidence of that, that this seafaring earlier civilization. Who knows how sophisticated it was, but pretty sophisticated, you know, in terms of what equipment it had and what tech it had, but pretty sophisticated. And uh, as I was sort of learning, so it seems to be borne out increasingly by these new discoveries. And in the words of Graham Hancock, which people will have heard him say, or maybe if you follow him, things just keep getting older. And what he means is they keep digging up all these older buildings all over the world that suddenly shouldn't be there as part of the standard model. Now. Just before we look at some of the ancient tech, I just want to sort of round up a little bit. So what might this global sieve have looked like and where where was it? We've heard what Donnelly said in his book. So I think we can see we've got pyramids on almost every continent, yeah? We can see a sort of common tech and approaches around the world, building stonework. There's three very distinctive types and loads of different continents uh, and dull work, the joints, different types of using big stone in Egypt, Greece, the Balkans, South America, Southeast Asia, all over the place, very similar, which would imply a common civilization and techniques. Uh, it's pretty likely the ancient civilization pre the comet strike or whatever it was, was defined by a big ice sheet, which probably went across halfway down North America and also across most of Northern Europe. We would have been under a lot of ice. And so you can see it's focused very much on that Mediterranean, Mediterranean area and downwards and across into Asia and all the rest of it. So uh, that that's important to realize that uh, and because you can see there was, there's nothing much above that in America in terms of monuments and stuff like that. There's indications of ancient sieves to back that up around Spain then when the, the archaeological stuff in the Mediterranean, in Egypt, in North Africa, Central and South America, the Middle East, the Indus Valley, in, in, obviously in India, and in Southeast Asia, a thing called the Cam, Cham, uh, as in Cambodia, or Cham, I think it's pronounced Cham or Cam. Cam, I think it's pronounced actually, obviously Cambodia. Uh, and that's a very old seafaring civilization in Indonesia. Now, there's a lot of stuff in the Southeast Asian thing that's very old. They've got pyramids, a lot of old buildings, similar to the stuff we see all across the world, but it's not really been mentioned as much. It's you know, but it's still there as well. So that's really interesting as well. If you're looking for a global older civilization with shared science, again, there's a lot of increasing evidence of older cities that are underwater, which I alluded to earlier. And the point you made is really important, Frank. Earlier, the weird thing is the oldest elements of many of these civilizations are the most advanced. 
And that really is not what you'd expect to see. It seems a one way round because you'd think that they've developed a bit and then they developed over time. But, uh, and that implies there were survivors of the older sibs who moved inland. And you see this in Sumner. They virtually had a whole developed culture in Sumner, building stuff, city management. And they just appeared out of nowhere and did it, which would imply they moved from somewhere else. Same with the Indus Valley civilization. And the other interesting thing is they've actually, these civilizations then deteriorated, as I said, over time, which would imply there was some knowledge that they actually lost. So that's quite compelling that. There's a lot of evidence of older civilizations, some LIDAR, as you know, that, that uh, radar uh, laser thing they can show under forests and other areas or on the ground. Big population centers, centers in Central and South America they didn't even dream of. Uh, certainly a lot of stuff in South America, which I think is a lot older than people think, and stuff there. And there's evidence all over the world of these older sites being discovered. Uh, I don't want to go into it too much, but there's basically, there's a lot of evidence of archaeological misdating, because a lot of it's very hard to date stone, and a lot of it they do contextual dating based on what they think, and, and archae biological matter, sort of soil matter and stuff, that they pull up from around the ruins, and this often can confirm what they think. So a lot of the dating is quite based upon a lot of conviction or ideology as opposed to actual hard science, and that's been a big problem there. But the, this new evidence is sort of slowly eroding the credibility of that, and a new generation of archaeologists has come along because they weren't allowed to dig below a certain depth. They were all scared at one point because it might ruin their careers if they found anything older than the established model, and that was a lot, happened a lot in America. So I won't go into all that, but there's basically a lot of big subset of dogma that has stopped a lot of these fans. It's only a new generation that has done it. Very good example for old stuff is of shared iconography and sort of symbolism, I suppose you call it, across the globe. Because you've got this idea of man bags. You might have all seen these on loads of different things across the world of people carrying they look, look like handbags or whatever, as you're putting old money. These are figures carrying them. And uh, ancient figures, and they're dressed in like fish suits and all the rest of it. And a lot of people think that, and these are seen the people who are coming to save the people who've had a disaster. And these are seen as maybe evidence of a more advanced civilization or survivors of a more advanced civilization. There's another interesting one in Globaki Tepe, they've got the figures have got these hands around the belly. And in Easter Island, it's exactly the same design on Easter Island, which would again imply some shared iconography there. There's loads of stuff like that. Stuff in Indonesia that goes into South America, lots of stuff there. So so I suppose, uh, and there's a lot of mythology again around the givers of ancient wisdom. That's all over the place. So I think we can see by the story of Atlantis, really, in this research. But again, these trends suggest our standard view of the age of our civilization and linear growth isn't correct. And we can then have a look now, well, we'll see what you think first, round. but we can next have a quick look at some of the most specific examples of ancient tech to give people an idea of how it might connect to other things we see.
Okay, so there we go. That is the end of part one. And there will be a part two. Uh, we ended up doing roughly about two hours, so we, I decided to split it into two episodes. So if you've enjoyed part one, you're definitely going to enjoy part two. Really worth sticking around for uh, checking that one out next week. And that's going to be all about um, some of the very specific links to do with ancient civilizations, the technology that may have been used, and how that connects with the way that we're looking at UFOs uh, currently. And also um, delving into some very specific examples of real in-depth scientific investigation that's taken place uh, to prove how remarkable some of these objects actually are. So I uh, highly recommend checking that one out. And until next time, take it easy, stay curious, and I'll catch you in the next episode. UFO Thinker Podcast.